Welcome to the Easy Peasy Podcast, where we discuss living better through permaculture, mindfulness, decentralization, flow, freedom, agorism, anarchy, and more. Our mission is to solve life's complex problems with simple solutions. I'm your host, Mike the Polymath Whistler, coming from the Easy Peasy Shop in Indianapolis, Indiana, the crossroads of America. Thanks for joining. back on the show how you doing i'm hanging in there man and thanks for having me back on the show as yeah. well so i sort of uh, listened last night to your most recent episode with stick mm-hmm. so a free a free flowing lots of hijinks in there so <laughs> i hope you enjoyed it the audio quality wasn't great i kind of screwed up the the recording but it was tolerable enough and i i thought it was a you know i thought it was a good conversation i didn't want to didn't want to lose it so we made we made do it was fine actually the the early end you could sort of detect the difference um, Mm -hmm. but it seemed to improve through the course and it was Mm -hmm. it was hardly um you know hardly a distraction it was well good good glad to hear that uh, I mean, there was a lot there listening to the conversation where I was like, I wish I was in the room because I was like, ah, wait, wait. <laughs> um, I knew, I knew that conversation would be right up your alley. You know, um, you know, in the early end, you guys sort of touched, you didn't really talk about it at great length, but there was definitely a segment where you were circling around the question of vaccination status and mm-hmm. and its implications for how we interact and then you know stick was um talking about the situation where um he's uh gonna go on this this trip with his friends and he can go on the trip but he may not be able to do certain things uh if he hasn't been vaccinated and uh, you know, he's in the midst of doing his own research and depending on the outcome of that research, he, he's inclined to go ahead and do it because for most people, you think, well, for most people, statistically, probably fine, right? And th- this is where I was kind of hesitant. I was hesitant because while that's true, statistically, the issue around and i guess i'm just jumping right in right yeah as we do around this status uh is not simply a medical issue it's not just a question of 
the medical merit or demerit of the intervention. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the mRNA shot, whichever one you, you get, because there's a few. Now, I do want to like note that pretty consistently across several studies, and I should have gone ahead, and if you want, I can come back and, you know, get those numbers and you can add them as a coda, okay? But just, I can say, I've looked a lot of stuff and pretty consistently what you find is that in terms of all-cause mortality, these uh, COVID shots do precipitate a rise. That is, even if the shots provided initially marginal protection against this condition, which itself is debatable, but let's grant that for the sake of the argument. Even if that is the case, what you do find very consistently is that there is a correlating uptick in fatality associated with other causes, whether those be of a cardiac, uh, cardiac variety. So you have, you know, thrombosis, mayo, Cardi, et cetera. You also have neurological events. Uh, you have various injuries that pertain to the fact that the spike protein will compromise people's vascularity. Um, and we're not talking necessarily about everybody, but what we are talking about is a situation where this is a treatment which transposes to create an overwhelming increase in injury and death. The argument is that the protection which it offers against a single plank, the plank of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which is alleged to precipitate COVID-19, um, is such that it should outweigh what other injuries it precipitates, but statistically that doesn't bear out. Now we're talking about phenomena of on a again on a population of million wide scale. You're talking about tens of thousands of people. So statistically, you're not talking. You, you've got pretty good odds of being okay with the shot, but the all-cause mortality figure throws into relief that you're still looking at uh, medical intervention, which would not pass even FDA standards, conventionally speaking. And that it did pass and proceeded beyond the, you know, step of um, even the emergency use authorization just speaks to how thoroughly compromised the process is because it was a political decision. It's not a, not a well-informed medical decision. And it's especially the case when you look at that, whatever protection the uh, shot seems to provide will uh, evaporate relatively quickly. Two, three, four months on the outside, studies consistently are showing, lead to uh, the diminution of any initial protection. Interestingly, when you first get the shot, you are in a space of heightened vulnerability for a week to two weeks. And, you know, there's all sorts of stuff, right? You can go on about, right? And also, interestingly, a serious argument can be made that what happens is you have the shot, even if it does provide that initial protection over the longer term, it will actually create a heightened susceptibility 
to the very condition against which it was supposedly formulated to protect. And there are various mechanisms proposed as to how that transpires. Uh, that, you know, one of them having to do with um, what's referred to as the notion of the original antigenic sin, where what it does is it trains your body to respond in a particular, actually relatively anemic way to the pathogen. And then it's like stuck in that rut so that it cannot deal with a more effective response to the, the same pathogen or a slight variation on that pathogen. And it's proposed this is because the uh, shot targets just one protein, one potential point of binding or insertion of the virus into the cell, that spike protein that everybody's heard about. Um, but in fact, there are several potential points of binding. And that's the difference between uh, an immunity, which is uh, derived from your own immune system. That kind of latter sort of natural immunity will uh, itself be formulated to resist multiple points of insertion. So that's why natural immunity is more robust and more long lasting probably than anything that may or may not uh, be derived from the, the shots, whether it's Pfizer, Moderna, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so there, those are, those are the, the quote unquote facts as I've understood them. And nothing I have said is controversial even from the vantage of conventional, um, of the conventional discourse. Uh, but anyway, all that being said, and I'm sorry if I'm going on. No, please go on. We have to, we have to recognize that the chief issue here is not a medical issue. It is not a scientific issue. It is a philosophical and a civilizational issue. And we have to ask as a civilization whether we want to use this dubious intervention as a predicate for a new form of segregation. And that is, by the way, what we're talking about here. Initially, I was cherry to use a word like segregation because it's so politically charged. But what, what else? else are we what else can you call it? Yeah. You're looking at your friend who will be confined to the cruise ship because he's not vaccinated, mm -hmm. okay? And it's not even really a vaccine by any uh, ordinary definition, okay? You look at yourself, uh, you address your own personal situation without going into the details. You have to revise your behavior with regard to your relationship with your own family because Ooh, you may or not be vaccinated, right? You know, I like to, you know, I, I like ran, you know, um, into a situation, I like to play ping pong. I learned in these facilities, uh, they're called, um, well, it doesn't matter what they're called, they, they, but it's a place where you can go to play ping pong. But the, the, the facility in question assumed a policy that you can't go unless you're vaccinated, mm -hmm. okay? Now, we've all seen the pictures, right? Not so long ago when there were signs where, you know, you see things like there's the black water fountain, there's the white water fountain. Mm -hmm. Now, you've seen, you know, a little further back, Irish need not apply. Okay, you've seen things like that, right? You know, and when we see those pictures, we see those, you know, signposts in history, and we're like, 
oh, that's horrible. How could people be like that? You're right. It was horrible. How could people be like that? But what are we doing right now? We are looking at the possibility of reinstituting a division along a virtually arbitrary line into two classes of citizens, which is another way of saying that there are two types of people, some whom are better, sorry, excuse me, some who are better and some who are worse. And that's why we have to draw the line to sand as to whether or not we're going to participate in this in, the, in these shenanigans, this malarkey, this nonsense, okay? And so everybody certainly needs to, you know, proceed from a vantage of informed consent with regard to whether or not they want to get a shot, any shot, or take any, uh, you know, actual vaccination or whether they want to participate in any medical intervention, okay? but. Whatever decisions these people make, or you make, or I make, they cannot be used as the legal predicate to justify the division of society. And so those of us who want to resist that, I feel it's almost incumbent upon us, and it's really a question of personal discernment, but it's incumbent upon us who want to resist that to say no, whether that be in terms of like, no, I'm not going to get the goddamn vaccine, if that's what you want to call it, or even if you do get it, like even if you do get it, I feel that you should not then participate in whatever privilege you would be able to access from it in solidarity with those of us who, you know, are not vaccinated or who yeah. aren't. Okay. So like, for example, even if, you know, if I was going to, if I was going to challenge stick, I don't know him personally, I would say, look, man, is that right? Is that right what they're doing? And if it isn't right, like, like say, like you know, say it was 1973, and you were on a cruise, or maybe 19, maybe that's a little. Let's say, let's say it's 1935. Okay. Or, or I think I know where you're going. You could say 1960, 69. From 1969, you're on a cruise, and then if you're black, you don't get to get off of you know whatever. It's hypothetical, right? You know, you have to stay on the cruise ship. Would that be right? Like, or you're not allowed on the cruise to begin with, for that matter. Well, then, like as a as a as a as a as a white person, you almost have an obligation in 1969 to say, "No, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go on the cruise." Right? I yeah, cannot boycott. participate in an advantage that derives from prejudicial treatment. Okay, and you know, so by the way, as it happens, when this first started. By this weird circumstance, I happened to receive the initial, uh, I got the Johnson and Johnson side. It was an accident. I, stupid. I shouldn't have gone. It was a bad decision. I happened to get it. All right. <clears throat> Let me tell you right now, I haven't had any booster. I'm not going to get any fucking booster. All right. And it was, it, was, it was an absolute mistake all the way down the line. Right. They gave me that stupid card and I have that card and I'm waiting to burn that card. The only reason I haven't burned it so far is because I'm waiting for a moment which where, where that I can, you know, do it on camera and it's propitious and yeah. can be as meaningful as possible. Just yeah. like they used to burn draft cards back during Vietnam. Those are the people who decide or have decided to, to be vaccinated should absolutely burn their bloody cards because it's an absolute sham. I fully, fully agree. I didn't always get so worked up about it. All right. No, no, I totally, I totally agree. I totally agree. 
And, um, you know, I'll say on Stick's behalf that sometimes it's hard to know. Um, you know, it sounded to me talking to him that he hasn't quite decided, but he made the point to say that he's content to be left behind. He is that kind of guy. He's very um, independent, but you know, he was, it it was hard to get a read on him in that conversation, which way he was going to go on that matter. Um, I'm not sure he's decided for himself and I'm, I'm I'm not going to speak for him, but I hope I don't sound like I'm attacking him. No, 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 not at all. But it's, you know, it's, it's, it's one example of how people are being kind of backed into a corner where it's like, you don't have to do it in the sense of at, at the barrel of a gun have to, but in order to work at your job, you know, go to your favorite musicians concert fill in the blank to do these basic things that people enjoy and uh you know you can't do that but you know you're still free to choose not to you're just you know gonna be the kid in the corner with the dunce cap on it's a a form of social coercion it's it's a false choice absolutely absolutely which is especially for people who are up against the wall in certain economic situations Mm-hmm. They got a family for which to provide. They can't. They can't. They they don't feel like they they can they can make that decision. Okay. And 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 it's uh, it's just a bad scene. Is what it is. It's a bad scene. And I mean, I can't even believe the stuff that's coming out of Australia. It's All unreal. Right? It's unreal. I mean, I really don't want. You do not want to believe it. I don't. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. They have concentration camps. In fucking mm-hmm. Australia, which was supposedly a Western de- liberal democracy. Mm-hmm. I mean, what kind of democracy? I mean, but you know what? To be fair, we've got concentration camps here too. We have concentration camps for people on the uh, on the border. Mm-hmm. And you know what? If you really want to just be utterly thoroughgoing in appreciating the implications of definition, the industrial prison system. Is it is is a network of concentration camps? Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, work work camps. Yeah. We live in a country which has the largest prison population, both in absolute and relative terms of any country on the planet. Yeah. That is insane. Just let yeah. that sink in. We have more people in prison than China, which is an autocracy for all intents and purposes. And they have something like three to four times our population. Yeah. And we have more not by per capita, but by just raw gross. Yeah, just absolute numeric terms, Mm -hmm. right? It's not just some sort of statistical sleight of hand. Yeah. So anyway, like this is all heavy heavy well, stuff. brother brother i appreciate and, your your authentic like rage if i can call it that because i feel it too and as we discussed on the last podcast it's been it's been a lonely time for people who see this for what it is in many ways and you know it it just blows my mind at this point like that that people were so quick to abandon their family and friends over the issue 
based on a perceived, you know, you, you need to do this because it's your duty. It's your obligation. And, and they were so quick to leave the people that they supposedly love, like to just, you know, either come along or, or fall behind in terms of our culture. And it's just sad to see, but you know, the, the, the explanation that makes the most sense that I keep hearing is this mass psychosis, mass hysteria, def, you know, this, this explanation. So you almost can't hold it against people. And we kind of covered this stuff when we spoke last, but it is still just, it's, it's infuriating. And I don't quite know, I don't know quite what to do about it, but I hope that, you know, so what I'm interested to hear your thoughts on as far as the rest of that conversation with stick goes is this idea of people can either like sort of be in the truth or they can, they can live outside of it. And I'm having a hard time putting the words to it right now, but this idea of mass psychosis to me is just an obvious, like so many people are living a lie. And despite all the evidence and all the logic that goes contrary to the lie that they're living, they're so invested in the lie that they refuse to consider that it's, that it's bullshit. So, you know, I, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm fascinated with this idea of capital T truth right now in that people are either capable of accepting it or apparently they're not. And it's kind of gut wrenching to think that some people are just going to like stay plugged into the matrix, you know? Um, well, the first thing I want to say is um, that one thing we almost have to do, and I, I sort of serendipitously ran upon a remark by this theologian Howard Thurman, right? You have to discern the relationship between mysticism and social justice. Why is it that people who are mystically disposed also will cry out for justice for the, for the poor and the disenfranchised? And the answer he posited was that justice and truth are commingled. And that if we are trying to get to a place where we have a relationship with the divine that is open, if we're working to get to that, that, that space, we also have to work to clear out what gets in the way of that discernment and injustice gets in the way of that discernment. I think it's, it's useful to remember that these terms cannot be divided because there is a sort of like this temptation to just sort of put on a loincloth and go to the Himalayas and get lost in 
a, a state of ecstasy. You can't actually do that and, and leave the world behind and expect it to be grounded, right? So the truth is only meaningful, I feel, if it connects us to some sort of impulse toward action in the world. And you have to be careful because there's a subtle difference between that and a kind of gross pragmatism where it's just uh, instrumentalist, right? Because even though I'm calling for action, I'm also saying that ironically, we can't be attached to the outcome of those actions. We have to be content and surrender to the notion that we could end up being complete failures in our effort and be okay with that, which that is not an easy, an easy pill to swallow, right? That's kind of the red pill, right? That is the red pill, right? You know, I think, um, I don't know if it was, uh, a, a, I, was I can't remember who it was, but it's just like, you're gonna be revolutionary. The first thing you have to learn is you're, you're done for, right? So there's like a total sacrifice that is that seems called for us to like enter into the truth, which is just not pleasant to countenance. Yes. Yeah. And um, that's why Dostoevsky is like you know, love and I'm paraphrasing right, but you know, love in in, in fairy tales is this wonderful thing, but in, in real life. It's absolutely, you know, a nightmare. <laughs> okay, so what, like, okay, this is not, this isn't the kind of stuff. I'm not. What I'm saying doesn't sell magazines. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. I'm not selling any magazines here. All right. But when we look at like what is necessary to connect with the big T truth, what seems to be necessary to connect with the big T truth is letting a lot behind. Now, what makes that possible? I think are two things, all right? Uh, the one is the reality of who we are because the reality of who and what we are is far more expansive than we can possibly imagine, right? And, and then the other thing which allows us to get to that is faith, right? Not necessarily a theological faith or faith in a particular system but a kind of faith in the fundamental goodness of the real, of the world. That, that's, I think, what's going to get us through, Mike, right? Because this is, we're, we are, at a, I think, at a very ugly point in history right now. But we have to have faith that it's not the end point of history. That the universe and that the beauty and sublimity of the real will ultimately move us beyond this junction in which we seem to be immured in so many lies and so many prevarications. And, and, and I mean, to the point where it's like, it's almost embarrassing talking to people. It's like, well, they were like, well, you think that everything's a lie. I was like, well, you know. Um, a lot of it is, a lot of it it's is. It's actually amazing, mm -hmm. right? But some of it's incompetence and some of it's fear. And for most, I think, I think for most people that you meet that are perhaps still persuaded by the narrative, right? It's, it's, there's just a lot of fear conjoined with uh, 
kind of shocking naivete. I think we talked about that last time too, right? Where they just don't seem to appreciate how nefarious individuals who occupy certain echelons of society can be. Um, maybe in their hearts, they're okay. But in terms of what they do functionally, you're, you're looking at a, you know, a de facto depravity, um, which can actually relate to a more practical line of an, uh, analysis where you say, well, the real problem is our dependence on institutions because institutions, they are very corrosive for a relationship and they're actually very effective at producing bad decisions. So we have to reimagine how, oh man, you just let me go on tonight, man. I'm sorry, I'm just going on. I love it, I love but, it. Uh, reimagine how society can be without institutional dependency. That's, you know, because what happens is if you don't have the institutions as a crutch on which to lean anymore, then you have to go out and you have to really connect what it is to be a healthy human being in healthy relationships. You know, like the sort of shift slightly. I was talking with another friend of mine, Matt, earlier today, Matt Kale, and we were talking about the disabling implications of education and how education evolved in the late 19th through the early 20th and you know, under the 20th century to where we are now. And we pointed out in the course of that conversation, if you were, you know, uh, your average 15 year old boy in America could build a house, could grow food on a plot of land, you know, they knew how to function in the universe. Right. I don't know how to build a house. Okay. Not really. You know, I can't, you know, I don't, I don't have access to these skill sets that were absolutely commonplace, but I'm a thoroughly educated human being as far as the system is concerned. Right. So there's this, you know, like disconnect from the actual earth that happens as a, as a fallout from the way in which we have configured the institution of education. You know, now we don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater because there are many positive things that can be gleaned from learning in a social context and from the tradition to which we are heir. But the way in which we're, you know, transmitting those terms now is deeply dysfunctional. So I thank you for indulging me, you know, because I haven't even really come all the way back around to the question of capital T truth versus small truth, absolute versus relative truth. And also the question of, which is almost sort of like, this is a different question, but there's then the question that comes up as to the relationship uh, between accessing that space and using mushrooms or other substances or chemicals to try and like, shepherd yourself along the way so i just want to ask you like where do you want to go in the conversation or what do you what do you, you know, what is your reply to what i have said so far or whatnot mm. well it's kind of a as usual i talk in in convoluted and backwards circular kind of ways but i'll tell you that you know stick and i basically spent three days together 
And last night we ate the last of his mushrooms. <laughs> and instead of engaging in dialogue, we decided to watch a series of movies. You know, frankly, we, I think we were both just kind of tired, but we were still like him and I were very much connected over the last three days, helping each other. You know, he had a, a problem with his truck. We won't go into it, but, you know, I've been helping him with that. He's been helping me with some other things. And last night we, we ended up eating these mushrooms and we watched three pretty incredible movies. Okay. And I couldn't help but think that there was a theme that ran true throughout these three movies. And without going into too much detail, it was Fargo. Have you ever seen Fargo? Well, that's a uh, Coen Brothers movie. Same, same uh, people as Big Lebowski, right? And then we watched Rushmore by Wes Anderson. Have you seen that one? No, I just saw his French Dispatch. Okay. And Joel Cohen has his Macbeth forthcoming. Mm -hmm. But anyway, go on. And then the third one was Jackie Brown by Quentin Tarantino. And these are some of the greatest movie makers of our time, in my right. opinion. The signature names in the, yes. in the early 21st century. And Fargo is a really funny, while equally gut-wrenching dramedy, I guess you'd call it, about true events that happened up in North Dakota, where many people got killed in a nutshell because of one desperate man's terrible decision-making. You know, he basically, without spoiling things, whatever... He hires people to kidnap his wife as a scam to get money to pay off a bad debt. And before you know it, there's bodies everywhere. And it's a true story. And it's, it's, it's all about, in my opinion, that movie was about the unpleasant reality of things. But also equally about the beauty. So it's, I mean, it's a movie about sort of human nature. And then you have Rushmore by Wes Anderson, where it's a movie about a 15 year old kid who falls in love with his teacher and she kind of halfway falls in love with him too. But it's, it's, it's not so much a sexual connection as it is a pure connection of souls, which is something that some of us are blessed with having, you know, having experienced. Um, but this movie, I, I watched it and I couldn't help but connect with it in that it's just that that moment where you meet somebody who you feel like you've known for lifetimes. And it's very. Um, I don't know, you can't put words to it. It's sort of one of these capital T truths of the fact that sometimes souls connect on a level that we can't even begin to understand. And then you've got this Quentin Tarantino movie uh, where I guess I don't have much to say on it, except that again, Tarantino is just very real about people, good, bad, and ugly, you know, like it's, and 
so my 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 point in bringing this up is to say that i i in terms of mushrooms specifically i've found that they're very um how do I, I hesitate to say useful, but when it comes to drawing connections and, and, and sort of seeing things as they are without your own biases and your own ego in the way, they're very helpful. Um, but it's, you know, it's like I was, <clears throat> I was sitting next to stick watching these movies and he had not seen Fargo, which was the first one. And frankly, the mushrooms were kicking in during the most intense scene where three people get killed. And, and I'm kind of watching him watch the movie and I can tell he is like feeling it. It is, it is very real. Um, and I almost wanted to break that moment because it was tense. It was uncomfortable. It was, I almost wanted to say stick is this movie too much for you. And instead I, I just let him, let him be. And uh, because I know he can handle authentic discomfort. You know, he's a person who I've camped with on the top of a mountain in, you know, 10 degree weather with sideways sleet you know <laughs> i know he can handle a little bit of discomfort a little bit of real um adversity and it's it's just again it's it's one of these things that seems to be separating the um if we can say the the awake from the the sleep sleeping at this moment if I don't like that terminology, but you know what I mean? Right. The, the willingness to, to suffer through momentary discomfort for the sake of absolute truth um, seems rare, but I don't know. Maybe I'm being a pessimist. I don't know if it's rare, uh, but it's certainly a minority position. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, so... Uh, our culture has a problematic addiction to ease, uh, to comfort. I mean, it shows up in the most, you know, when I get annoyed, I, I work, you know, uh, at a grocery store and uh, people get annoyed when they can't just, when they, when, well, I've seen people get annoyed when they, actually have to insert their credit card chip into the machine instead of just waving it wow get annoyed yeah yeah and just wave their card okay and to me i mean i don't mean like oh they're like you know like losing their mind and having an embolism but it's just the very fact that is like a stopping point in your in your process where you're like oh my lord i have to put my card in the machine i'm like what fucking going on man all right yeah you know people you know ah. well i but i hate to sound cliche so much more and it's not like i'm some spartan all right i, I like mm -hmm. my you know creature comforts i i, I really do but it's it's at, a, it's at a pitch right now that's that's 
frankly, somewhat, 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 it's, it's genuinely perplexing because honestly, after a point, don't you just, I mean, I mean, after a point, like there's a certain level of ease, which is almost repellent to me, right? If something's too easy, mm-hmm. it's, it's boring. It's unexciting. It's like, why, why do you want things to be that easy? It's just, it's uninteresting. It's uninteresting to me, right? To me, like one of the, to me, like a really cutting insult is to call something obvious, right? But it's like, everything's obvious. Everything is obvious anymore. And, I, and, and I'm like, no, we got it. enough with the obviousness. We need to reconnect with our capacity for subtlety. Hmm. Uh, now, I think maybe what happens with mushrooms and, and so forth, is, and it just occurs to me as we're speaking now, is that you have a shift, a, a contrast. It precipitates a contrast in terms of seeing something, mm-hmm. right? And it's that contrast which maybe then conduces to the letting go. You know, you look at something from one perspective, it's a square, you twist it a little bit, and then it's a cube, right? You know, mm-hmm. um, like, oh, the thing has depth, which isn't immediately accessible at a certain point. So maybe if we frame it in that fashion, what's happening with the use of uh, chemicals to alter the mind state isn't so much a consequence of the chemicals themselves as just the exploration of an alternative vantage from which to view something. Mm-hmm. It's a variation of perspective which can perhaps allow us to let go of old ways of doing. Uh, is that cohere? Oh, a hundred percent. Well, it, I don't now, know if you listened to the part of the episode where I was discussing sort of this visual that I was having. But the, uh, you were talking about the audio track. That yes. From one vantage, it's an audio track. It's, mm-hmm. it's sort of, um, you know, line, you know, like it's like a line, mm-hmm. but if you like sort of rotate it, then it comes uh, from like a, another perspective to be like a butterfly, as I recall. Yeah, so you could almost imagine it's like, say, I, I was thinking also in terms later on after the episode about it's almost like an atom and nucleus type situation where, you know, you wouldn't even, how can I say this? Say there's an atom traveling through space, right? And it's electrons and neutrons are spinning around well i suppose uh you know the new whatever i'm a little rusty on my on my molecular science but you got your nucleus and you've got your electrons buzzing about it right Right. in a nutshell and it's traveling through space and if you perceived that like we do say a song in a stretched out two-dimensional way it would look similar again to an audio bar where you have sort of a a solid line with these these waves around it these these noises whatever whatever word you want to use and 
it would look chaotic. You wouldn't quite know what to make of it. But as you're listening to the song, you're maybe seeing that point where this is the point in the song that you that you are at currently. You know, this thing is a representation. So I was trying to describe this visual of sort of existence, um, sort of reality being like a song, like a like an audio bar representation of a song where if you look at it from the side, you know, at any given point on this song, the the noise around this central line which we were calling capital t truth you know this is the flow state this is the authentic real truth and everything around it is us and everything kind of buzzing about but as soon as you stop looking at it in this way trying to make a story out of the stretched out song if you if you enter the song if you exist within the song you see it for what it is, which is something organic. It's not an audio bar with these lines and these pixels. It's a, you know, it's sort of a organic creature. And I, I imagined it as a butterfly, but, you know, an atom is another good sort of representation where if you can sort of pause it whoop, and enter that, that, that perspective of looking at it from the inside which is what the mushrooms sort of allowed me to conceptualize. And I don't know if this makes sense. Sometimes I wonder if I'm losing it, but you know, all I can do is try to put it to words, I guess. I don't know. Right. I mean, so the whole uh, challenge of language is my, my elevator speech about language and this, these sorts of questions uh, is, is to draw on the analogy of, of, of a map, right? You can never actually put the globe on a map because right. of, I mean, be or you can't put the globe on a piece of paper because mm -hmm. the piece of paper is two dimensions and the globe is three dimensions. Mm -hmm. You can come to an approximation, which is always going to have a distortion. Mm -hmm. You can account for that distortion. That's why they have different kinds of projection. Okay. But you can never eliminate the distortion. And so that's, is what's going on with language and its relationship to truth. The truth is uh, as a greater sort of ontic density than what can be encompassed with any discursive linguistic formation. And so you can only arrive at a distorted expression of it, which is not to bar you from using that expression. You just have to be sensitive to that reality. You have to have a light touch about it, right? And so here, using the map of language what i hear you suggesting is that there's a greater sort of coherence and vitality to our relationship with the true than we might guess if we confine ourselves to what can be uh relayed in um a reducible closed system that is language right it puts me in mind of uh, the pro it's similar to the problem that is <laughs> at the heart of um, Kurt uh, Gödel's proof, his famous proof. Gödel's proof. Uh, mathematics is actually sufficiently sophisticated. It, it, it's it's hard just to talk about that, right? But what Gödel's proof says: Look, at the end of the day, you can axiomatize arithmetic. You try to axiomatize arithmetic, 
you're actually going to get pushed out of arithmetic because every set of axioms, which is the ground of a system, actually itself constitutes a meta system that's relied on, that relies on another set of axioms beneath it, and so on and so on and so on. And so that's the old song, it's turtles all the way down. Doesn't mean mm -hmm. you don't use arithmetic. And obviously, there's something fantastically true about that two plus two equals four. But you, when you try to like get beneath that, you just get pulled down, and down and down and down. And it is literally infinite, which is actually fantastic, right? Absolutely fantastic, right? And then there's the true. And the true is what is like what's right there, and two plus two equals four, which seems very straightforward, very transparent. <laughs> and so you start touching it and then it's like whoa you know mm. <laughs> so but you know i just uh, the only hesitation i had was that you know and you yourself said it in the conversation is that you don't you don't need the mushrooms in fact all mm -hmm. you really need to do is pay attention yeah all right and uh awareness what we were calling and, and, um, attunement, attunement is right. the word we chose. I actually really liked what Stick was saying about the idea of situational attunement, situational mm -hmm. attunement. I thought that was a very nice turn of phrase in terms of like what really guides us because any moral system is going to just fall down against the amazing variability of circumstances. I still think you can arrive at some very strong rules of thumb, right? Like generally speaking, it's a very good idea never to lie. <laughs> okay, very, very. It's actually also very hard. Okay, you know, it's uh, um, because we're we're so habituated to subtle dishonesty, right? But um, uh, you can arrive at bizarre circumstances where a certain equivocation may be recommended you can't you can't provide criteria and that's why i think he was uh, as i recall sort of hesitant or because you you right that actually came up in connection with how to re, 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 reply to this whole vaccine non-vaccine sort of uh, dilemma mm -hmm. is that you know he felt like no recommendation could be solidly what i heard him saying was that he was hesitant to embrace any recommendation because he was so aware of the fact that you have remarkable variations in circumstances that foreclosed for him his capacity to speak for another human being and in a way that's kind of like the anarchist dilemma right we have a sense of what's appropriate but because we have a very strong awareness as to this um the voluntarism principle situation well I'm sorry i was going to say the voluntarism principle as in right, right. sort of what you i think what i'm hearing you say is like even when we feel we know what's right to do we the paradox is it's not our place to impose it exactly exactly right. you know um and I mean, it's it's actually like a real issue. It's it's heartrending, uh, and I won't be, you know. I mean, it 
yeah, are there not situations where we've all felt like, well, we have to intervene, right? I mean, the parade example is if like you see a kid try to put his hand on the stove, right? You're going to stop him, okay? You're going to you're going to contradict the will of the child, right? And so that's that's just real, okay? And it's it's transparently the right thing to do in that circumstance. Um, so that's like that's like the counterfactual to the idea that we can never really, you know, put ourselves in a situation where we're going to impose a will on another person, right? Yeah, I mean, it's that's sort of you know we can use that counterfactual because it's relatively trivial. No one's really going to get hurt, okay? But uh, you know, grabbing a kid and keeping him from putting his hand on the stove or running into the street or what have you. But it isn't too long before things get gray even then, right? Like then you have a 14-year-old. Are you going to let the 14-year-old get drunk? A really right. good idea. You know, you know, I mean, you start getting into these, these gray zones um, very quickly, you know. And um, it almost, and it comes all the way back to the question of power with which we're so uncomfortable, uh, especially as anarchists, right? Okay. Are there times when we have to just say, look, I have to take power in this situation. I don't want to, but maybe this is what I have to do. And I don't have the answer, Mike. I don't, mm -hmm. all right? I, but, you know, I like to look at the madness that's going on right now. And I really do think it's absolutely crazy. And so then like, you know, where, where do I draw a line? And then you have to have a faith. You have to have a faith in other people, which is really hard right now. Like, because so many people seem to be transfixed by a delusion. By the way, I don't think quite as many people are as transfixed as some might hold. It's just hard to say precisely the, the breakdown through the whole society. I think a lot of people are kind of going along to get along, even oh, yeah. though they think it's a bill of goods and a, and a pile of bull. Um, and now you even have, you know, glimmers in the financial press that isn't about enough enough, which is kind of a positive auger, right? Like, well, once the Wall Street guys get sick of it, at least then they're going to back off a little bit. Yeah, yeah, it's so yeah. Exhausting. It's so exhausting. But, um, but nonetheless, you know, we, I don't know, man. So it's, it's a long fight. Because it's, I, it's, 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 it's a civilizational question. It's like, how are we going to relate to our own mortality? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I hate to even admit it, but like part of why I'm going through the trouble of building a camper right now, aside from just wanting one and thinking it'll be fun, is part of me fears that just by being, you know, an outspoken anarchist, I might genuinely need to stay mobile i don't know you know there i i'm a bit fearful um as at i it, i think we're similar in that we feel as though we have no choice almost except to rebel in some way at the very least to be disobedient if not outwardly in opposition and given the, the the time that we're living in the the level of 
surveillance and data harvesting and the ability for our own government to, you know, basically capture and hold people without, without charge, without trial. I mean, it's, I, I don't mean to sound like a paranoid kind of guy. I don't think anybody's watching me right now thinking we're going to get this, this punk, (laughs) but I fear for what things could be like 10 years from now or less or less. Um, I, so I, it's it's a perfectly legitimate set of apprehensions that you're enumerating, and mm-hmm. it, they're not without historical precedent. That's part right. of what's terrifying, right? Part of what's terrifying Which, is that these sorts of things have happened in other places. Well, they've happened here too, but not on a like large scale. But you know, I I don't feel like your point was completed. Well, I was gonna say, do you think that maybe? even if people won't admit it to themselves, right? Maybe they feel the same threat that I'm expressing here. Even, yeah, okay. I might be totally off base, but it's like, what if on a subconscious level, people are simply too scared to stand up and put their necks out, right? or the chopping block potentially. So this is just herd instinct. You know, nobody wants to be what the, the, the nail that sticks up gets hammered down kind of thing. Um, and they wouldn't, they wouldn't even let themselves buy that. I don't think it's, it's, I choose to believe a lie so that I have a good excuse not to be not only uncomfortable, but unsafe. And not in terms of safe from any kind of disease, but safe from public the authorities. Uh, yeah, punishment. from from punishment and shame and all of that. Right. And so I think people, shame is the real driver here. Yeah. And punishment is secondary. That's my opinion. Like, in other words, most people are afraid of social uh, embarrassment. Oh, if I don't wear my mask, everyone will think I'm like, oh. You know, I mean, I think I'm a Trumper, right? Right, exactly. Right. You know, they'll think I'm threatening and aggressive, you know, which is absolutely ridiculous, ridiculous. Right. Okay. Um, and it's, it's uncomfortable. And I won't, I, you know, I'm, I, even I'm apprehensive, right? I don't, I don't, I don't want to be dismissed. Nobody wants to be dismissed. Okay. Unfortunately, I think the only way forward is for more and more people to say, fuck it. Okay. I mean, right. we have to stop giving the, the lie the benefit of respect. I remember not too far into this thing, I had a conversation with someone, and I remember they were kind of blown away. Because, you know, I work at a grocery store. I'm usually at the self-checkout as a cashier. So, like, literally, probably literally on any given day, I am, you know, dealing with hundreds of people, okay? Right. And she was saying, well, you know, that must be something. You being in that job every day, it must, be feel, it must feel so dangerous. <laughs> and 
What do you mean? Like, have I ever been held up? Like, did somebody bring a gun in and, and no, no, the place? She, no. <laughs> yeah. no, I'm just being facetious. You right, know? right, yeah. right. Yeah. And I was like, no, not, not really. It's not dangerous. The only thing that's dangerous is possibly people's response to the situation. Yeah. And she was just yeah. kind of like flummoxed, flummoxed, but in a positive way, right? Mm-hmm. People have to know that their intuition, this is about 89 to 97% bullshit. <laughs> I like Correct. that spread. I like that spread. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's somewhere in there. It's somewhere in there. Yeah, I'd say you're pretty, pretty spot on. <laughs> but yeah, no, I think people and are like, like starting. Sure, like, look, you know, it's, it's sort of like the speed limit, man. I just want to say, it's like the speed limit. Uh huh. Like next time someone, maybe that next time someone comes up, comes at me about this stuff, I'm going to like, let me ask you a question. Do you obey the speed limit? Do you always go 55 miles an hour? And no. you know why no one can say yes to that question? Because everyone knows that the speed limit is bullshit. Mm. Just like everybody knows this is fucking bullshit. The masks are bullshit. The social distancing is bullshit. The PCR tests are bullshit. And everybody knows it. So like this is including people like Anthony Fauci, including your mainstream media talking heads. They know it's bullshit. I know most of your listeners are already bullshit, but for like maybe like the 11% that one of their friends pushed this on them, they're like, guess what, buddy? You know it's bullshit too, okay? And yeah, it's funny. Just man. Stop cooperating with the bullshit. I'm sorry I'm using that word so much, but that's it, right? I'm it's, done with giving the, it respect. Don't word respect. of the year. Word of the year is bullshit. No. And you you would think, man, it's... It just, it still astonishes me. Cause like, I never set out to lose any friends, you know, but it astonishes me that I have. And, um, I've got one, whatever. I don't even want to say this cause I don't want to make it sound like I even give a shit, but I've got, I've got four ratings on Apple podcasts. I, I, you know, I checked for the first time today, just curious if I'd gotten any ratings or reviews. Cause I don't even ask for them, but I have three five-star reviews and one one-star. <laughs> and I, I just kind of had to chuckle at that. I really did. I'm like, huh, I can't help but feel like there's a decent chance that one-star review is somebody I know personally who's just mad at me because I don't go along. And that I, you know, it's... I. I, I can claim a certain amount of, you know, responsibility because of the tone I've chosen, because like you said, at, at throughout this past year and a half, there have been times where I've shown absolutely no respect for the common narrative. I've been outright disrespectful towards it because I've found it so insulting, but that stance and that tone has, has left certain people feeling like I've personally attacked them or that I am part of the problem or something. Get out the smelling salts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and part of it is I was trying to wake people up and there's some folly in that, but some people don't want, I mean, yeah, you know, we can't avoid it. Yeah. 
I don't like that language either. I don't like saying, oh, I'm superior. I know the truth. You know, right. that's, 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 not, that's not how I roll. I don't, that's not how you roll, okay? But what we are filming here is a position which actually demands a certain level of responsibility from people, all right? We are telling you, look, you have the responsibility to exercise your own intelligence. And exercising your own intelligence will lead you very quickly to a condition of incredulity with respect to the organs of truth as our society presents them. If you exercise your intelligence, you can no longer watch the news without feeling insulted. Okay, right. at, at, at the, the absolutely shameless condescension with which it presents the truth to you. It's so didactic and prescriptive and infantilizing. I don't, I don't, I don't even know how anybody watches it. I mean, Very few do anymore. Yeah. It's, it's ludicrous, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah. the things they'll say, they'll be like, oh, studies find that people who have an umbrella with them when they go for a walk often become less wet than those who don't have an umbrella. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, hyperbole, man. Yeah, it's total, total. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you leave your pet in the car, it's a good idea to crack the window. This is the kind of you know thing that they 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 they, they, they peddle, like right? mm -hmm. the so-called human interest stories. And I'm yeah. just like, how does anybody watch this? Well, you you can tell what you're what you're hitting on with these um scripted sort of like headlines and um talking points and it's it's obvious like we've kind of talked about if you can shift your your perspective if you can stop being the passive consumer who who just buys it you know as as truth if you can shift your perspective towards a, a slightly more critical one and you watch this stuff it becomes obvious that what they're actually doing with these carefully crafted sentences is doing everything in their power to say something that is not untrue. You know what I mean? They're not they, saying something true. They're saying something that can't be proven wrong. You know, it's like there have been so many lines about COVID and you read it and you, you just say, if you have half a brain, you say, that sentence says nothing. You know, you know what I'm saying? Yes. Well, I mean, because it's not about what maybe what happens with people who are committed to something like critical thought mm -hmm. is that we lose track of that. This is not the only game being played. They're not playing a game of critical thought and conversation. They're not playing a game of dialogue. They're playing a game of manipulation, mm. right? Emotional manipulation, right? And it's not, you know, like right now, I'm just sort of being cranky about the, you know, propagation of the obvious, which is in, in fact a way of instilling in people a sense that they're, 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 they're idiots when they're not. Um, 
But the other way they'll do it is that they'll just, they will just, you know, grenade you with factoids, right? And Jacques Roux, author of the Technological Society and many other books, and also a fine book on propaganda, notes, interestingly, that amongst the populations that are most easy to effectively propagandize are the educated, are the highly educated, because you can seduce them with an appeal to numbers. Just you just, just, just throw them out there, just throw them out there en masse. They don't even have to be coherent. And then that just, that, that, that similitude of sagacity, because that's all it is, is a similitude, just draws them in. And then you arrive at the very emotionally uncomfortable place where you have to confront the fact that most of the positions that you have assumed in your life, you have assumed not because you've thought through the conclusions, but because it fits into the idea of who you think you are as a person. I'm a good person and good people believe this and therefore I believe that is roughly how it goes. It doesn't actually have to do with the content of the position, right? And we're all guilty of it, including myself, okay? I, we're just kind of free-flowing here. I'm sorry if like yeah. we're not landing at a, a specific point, but you know, it just comes yeah. back to the fact that all I'm asking is for you to use your own mind. Mm -hmm. Use your own mind when you listen to these, these, these proclamations from the Oracle at local News 12, WKRC or whatever it is, okay? Just think one step further. Even better, think two steps further. But even if you just think one step further, this stuff is so shallow, so insipid, it falls mm. apart like a, like a deck, like a house of cards. Yeah. But once that happens, then you have to like deal with your own bad faith. And nobody likes dealing with their own bad faith. I don't like dealing with my own bad faith. Okay. I got my bad faith. I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I don't. Okay. Um, but, you know, we do what we can. Well, I was sitting here thinking about how it's kind of like I've, I've gone through waves of disbelief you know it's like how come everybody doesn't see it <laughs> right <laughs> you know it's like stick and i were talking you know it always it's it's it, it seems so cheesy looking back and thinking about the words we use but we're kind of looking at each other after watching these movies right and i said to him you know why is it like so few people get it right just in general just like you know, how come there's so few people that can just like see another human at any given moment and be like with them? I hope this is coming through. I hope this is making sense. But I, I, I grew up in many ways kind of starving for something truer than the community I saw around me, right. Growing up in the burbs, like nothing against it, you know, like everybody, people, there are just people like anywhere else, but just, it had this like Pleasantville kind of 
feel to it where you look around and you just kind of wonder like, huh, like something about this just doesn't feel honest. You know what I mean? And like in a lot of ways, American culture has become that, um, you know, our, our microwave dinner kind of like throwaway culture, the temporary, you know, plastic, like disposable American culture, but that's just the surface level shit. And that's just like what they show on, on the ad time during, you know, television break. But I know that like our culture is built on something more solid than that. And I think it's starting to show itself with folks like us that are trying to, you know, not give in to the, to the programming. So I am, I'm, I'm, I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm more hopeful than I was like the, the times of disbelief and sort of like, um, just being like, God damn, what the, what, what is wrong with people? You know, it's like, that's not the right way to spend your time. I'm, I'm becoming more hopeful because I'm getting more and more like intentional about plugging in with the people that I do see who get it and just, you know, selfishly trying to like surround myself with those kinds of people and whatever, um, the pragmatic apathy, the, the selective apathy of like, <laughs> you know, kind of letting go, as you said earlier, um, it's not easy. It's really really difficult to let let things go um especially when people occasionally throw like i don't want to say insults but like negativity at you uh, which i've been experiencing <laughs> so i'm just like i i'm starting to realize don't take it personally people are very like emotional right now and it, you can't expect everybody to think the way you do so just whatever like move on you know, surround yourself with, with the people who, who I hate to say it, you know, not who agree with you, but who see, who see what you see. At well, it's almost least. like, you know, it's almost like, and you gotta be careful because it, it can sound really, really superior and that's not how I mean it. Okay. Mm -hmm. But it's almost like we're playing different games. Mm -hmm. Okay. And you gotta be, got to be hanging out with people who are playing the same game as you as it as it were okay so otherwise like, the game ain't much fun if right, you're playing so different rules yeah there's like there's a scene in the matrix it's a great scene overall where agent smith is talking with morpheus the first, you know mm -hmm. in, you know in the interrogation system he looks out he's like you ever like look out and just be amazed at it Mm -hmm. all these millions of people going about their lives and they've got no sense of what's actually going on. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there's Morpheus and agent Smith who are enemies, but they know what the fuck is going on. They both get okay? it. Yeah. Right. And that's sort of the situation we're dealing with. Right. You know, uh, but it's like not everybody is up to that level of information. I mean, I'm saying anybody can be, anybody can be, it's just the case that not everybody is. And you almost have to shepherd people in 
because it's just too much all at once. Okay. Yeah. It's just too much all at once. And it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable because you just want to tell everybody, you know, mm-hmm. um, as much as you can. But hey, man, you know, it's just, you just, the, the, there's a kind of triage that has to happen and it's just lamentable. And hopefully one day the world will be better and that, that triage will no longer be a part of our, of our social fabric. You know, something I've been considering lately um, is the idea of equilibrium. And, um, you know, I, I studied ecology to some extent in college. It was part of my degree. It wasn't the only, it wasn't the only thing, but um, we talked about this idea of ecological equilibrium where, you know, in essence, what ecosystems do is strive for equilibrium balance um you know a a mature forest is in many ways at a point of what you would call stasis right it's not really changing once it's reached maturity it's kind of just steady it just (laughs) is and that's i'm not saying this is the what you uh always want or this is the only good but you know equilibrium is the sort of natural state at which nature seems to be comfortable we'll say and um you know i'm i'm trying not to ascribe good or bad to it but let's say hypothetically for argument's sake i think equilibrium is good and when things are in disorder uh, when there's a disruption in an ecosystem, it leads to a lack of equilibrium and it takes time. It takes succession is the principle of ecology in which, you know, a, a ecosystem has been knocked out of equilibrium and it's stumbling its way back towards it. Right. So, uh, you know, a plowed over cornfield gets left fallow for 20 years and it turns back into a forest but it's another 20 years before it's a mature forest kind of thing. And my point in saying this is this time that we're living in, I think this concept of equilibrium uh, should apply towards sort of society culture um, where people are happiest at most at peace. We'll say happiest is super relative, but peace I think is sort of quantifiable and, it's, it's a state of equilibrium, you know, socially that we should strive for. So in these times where clearly we're out of equilibrium, I think that's why you get certain people that want to jump into action and want to be sort of the, the white blood cell who goes into a frenzy and tries to fix the problem to, to regain equilibrium, to regain homeostasis as, as you'd refer to it with the immune system. Um, you know, I'm kind of rambling here, but my point is there's a reason a lot of us had this gut reaction to go vocal or, you know, to start discussing things. And I think it's a good reaction. A lot of us maybe went overboard at, at, at first, you know, I can say that maybe, you know, I can, I can admit that myself, but it's still, it's, it's an instinctual drive to guide our culture back towards some form of equilibrium, uh, some form of relative peace. You know, I think it's, I think, 
I, that's my theory. Well, I have to confess that I'm inclined to push back a little bit. Okay. Because of my view as to, well, there's, there's a few different things going on, right? Um, there's the question of what is it to be human distinctively? In mm -hmm. some ways, what is distinctive about human beings is our capacity to break out of homeostasis. We are not trees. We can use homeostasis, but it seems that there is a drive to move beyond simple stability. Um, and this ultimately then connects. So there, there's that. There's a question of whether as human beings, we really should be arriving at a condition of homeostasis. And that's an open question. I'm not, I mean, I have my view, but you know, I'm just putting it out there as an open question. There's also the question of temporal scale, right? Where part of the problem of the present is that we haven't even really touched on this in our conversation so far, is that we have a very limited sense of temporal scale, right? Now, the Native Americans, they used to say, right, ask when you're looking at a, a, a course of action, consider its implication for the seventh generation. Mm -hmm. You know, we're lucky if we can think of the next election cycle, okay? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, two or four years, not seven generations, all right? I mean, cathedrals were built in Europe over the course of three, four, five generations. Right, so maybe another segment from our problem there, you know, arrives at when you're trying to discern what is homeostasis. Mm -hmm. This is a really distinct from the question of whether or not we even should be like arriving at homeostasis. Is it something which we can really effectively delineate with respect to just a few years? Is it maybe something that has to be conceived of over a generation or in generational terms? And then the final thing I was going to say is that, which is going to sound a bit grandiose, I know, and, and uh, you know, expose me to the charge of um, Luciferian anthropomorphism, uh, anthropomorphism, anthropomorphism mm -hmm. like fully anthropomorphic projection, Batman, right? But like, what are the cosmic implications of what we're doing right now, you know? You know, which sounds like like crazy, you know, like this guy's crazy. What are you talking about, right? But there's a relationship between what we're doing and the cosmic truth because we are part of the cosmos, right? And so, you know, maybe, you know, that's the thing is that we have to make a decision as to who we are going to be as a civilization in the universe. And our answer to that question informs what the universe itself actually is. So those are all actually open questions, but that, 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 those are, that's like my, my, that's my like set of responses to your, to your musing there about taking the, the notion of homeostasis. And then what I think you were doing is saying that those of us who 
are responding uh, in moments like 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 the moments that we've been having um, are just exhibiting a yearning and a desire to to um, arrive at a different, more ordinary condition. Maybe maybe that's it. Maybe that's what you mean by homeostasis, right? So what do I mean by like uh, ordinary condition? What is homeostasis? Well, the homeostasis that I want is a homeostasis where I can go to the grocery store and not worry about whether someone else thinks that they're going to catch the alien death plague from me. Okay. Mm-hmm. That's like what I'm talking about. I'm talking about just, just We're being talking- able to going about your, your life in a relaxed fashion. And nobody's allowed to relax anymore. We could reframe instead of using the word homeostasis, we could call it health. <laughs> you know, what we're striving for is health in our, in our society with our relate. We want healthy relationships. Yes. yes that's that's what we want. Community. We want an actual healthy society. So ironically I, enough, I use the terms that I kind of have picked up along the way. I like thinking in terms of ecological definitions because I find a lot of truisms in ecology you know it's a very sort of open-ended science as i've said before um but in terms of the you know these are just theories we're we're talking about the idea of um you know the idea of equilibrium is sort of just an observation of the fact that the rate of the rate of change has slowed down it's not that there is no change it's that the rate of change has slowed down so I guess my, what I'm arguing here, okay, there are sort of two different schools of thought in terms of evolution and ecosystems and how they strive towards equilibrium. The first being what they call punctuated equilibrium, meaning long periods of time go by with very little change. And then there's a disturbance which leads to rapid speciation, you know, in other words, rapid evolution. Um, The other theory of equilibrium is called gradualism, right? Sort of Darwinian natural selection, you know, selective breeding, um, you know, what do they call it? Evolution by way of natural selection. Yeah. So the slow and steady, you know, changing over the span of millennia. Now, the truth is both of these theories are valid and true, right? In my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I well, yeah, there's truth in both is how I was. There's truth in both, yes. Um, Two sides, same coin. And what I'm sort of getting at here is that I think we're at a point as a culture, as a human ecosystem, that we are out of equilibrium and therefore in a state of rapid change, rapid evolution. And that, okay. well, yeah. And, and that the goal is to get back to a level of homeostasis, equilibrium, a healthy existence where things are not chaotic. You know, homeostasis, truth is, in, in the body, if homeostasis stops, you die, right? It, you well, know, 
your, your, your body temp has to stay within a certain threshold. That is, you know, that's what we're talking about. And, um, we've got to keep the temperature within a certain threshold as a culture. Otherwise we have war. I mean, I think that's kind of what I'm arguing. I'd prefer, I guess. I mean, I, well, I, I mean, yeah. So putting it that way, I, I'm more sympathetic. mm -hmm, mm So, um, the only thing is, I would say we have to move forward to, not back, right? Not to be. I know I'm quibbling a little bit. You're like, no, no, no. It's great. Yeah, keep going. Um, I guess this is like another conversation, right? But I think that what's the, like the missing term is 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 the, the, the old Aristotelian notion of teleology, right? That there's a final end toward which we all, toward which all phenomena, all which all phenomena incline or are driven, right? And so the, the limitations of the evolutionary perspective, the modern evolutionary perspective, I think, derive from its allergy to admitting that there's something like purpose in the universe, that there's something uh, teleological about nature itself, right? That's mm -hmm. that's considered verboten to suggest that the fact that complexity proliferates rather than diminishes over time in ecosystems. Uh, they say, well, that's just old fashioned medievalism, what you're saying, but I, I think it is just one of many indications that, that all life is moving toward some kind of final objective or purpose, which is its fulfillment. And that, you know, is, are the, the contemporary science, it's allergy to incorporating that heuristic into its analysis is, 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 a serious, is a serious constraint on its capacity for positive finding. Um, in this connection, I find uh, Rupert Sheldrake's theory of morphogenetic, uh, morphogenetic fields uh, very very persuasive. Are you familiar with Rupert Sheldrake? Mm -hmm. Oh, dude, let me tell you what. Just, just please promise me. I will as soon as we're done here. Okay, I'm going to send you a link. Yeah, please do. It's yeah. going to like blow you away, man. You, yeah. I mean, it's it's going to it's going to blow you away, right? Um, and this is really just kind of fun stuff. It isn't really immediately connected to all the sort of deeper things we've been circling around, but man, it's like crazy. Because he was, he was in Oxford in the early 70s. He was working with plant life and he was looking at the notion of um, morphogenetic fields, which is actually at first blush a relatively commonplace notion. And it's like the theory is like, okay, well, how come your hand becomes a hand and not a foot? How come an oak leaf looks different than a maple leaf? They still don't have a good answer to that question. It's sort of like a placeholder the placeholder theory that operates even within conventional science is there's something like a morphogenetic field that is, uh, surrounds or emanates from organisms and that it's the constraining character of the field that gives rise to um, the shape of things. Or yeah, you know, shape, form, function, and so forth, right? So mm -hmm, the mm -hmm. right ear becomes your right ear, not your left ear and all that sort of stuff. One of the, I think I'm, I was just going to say, I'm, I'm following you, I think, in that, like, if we can break it down, I mean, I'm having a little bit of a hard time. We'll see if I'm on the right track here. We're talking sort of that, like, the constraints being 
gravity and the force of wind and rain and um, like when, in terms of using this example of a tree and the DNA is only so much of the, the factor at play in the final right. form that, that, that without these infinite constraints, the one well, yeah. wouldn't look the way it does versus the other. I, am I following you a little bit? Well, Listen. except it's not just exterior. The, okay. the, the notion is that the fields emanate from the organism itself. So, and, and, in, and so like, for example, uh, an indication of the reality of morphogenic, morphogenetic fields is phantom limb syndrome in people who have had Amputation, yeah. Amputations. They still experience the shape and form and reality of their limb. And in fact, they've done these like really interesting studies where they will push their phantom limb through a door and then someone on the other side of the door will be able to situate where that person is pushing the limb through the door, even though obviously they can't see it because it's an energetic field. Almost like they could shake the invisible hand, right? Right. So you can get hints of it with, um, you know, what is it? It's like Corellian photography where they like photograph your aura and stuff like that, right? Mm -hmm. Electro, mm -hmm. The electromagnetic field, which encompasses an organism is more than just an accident. Also drives the morphogenesis of the organism to become what it becomes. Now, what Sheldrake posited is that this is a very interesting, very useful heuristic for dealing with plant, with dealing with, you know, flora and fauna, dealing with biological phenomena. Like, but why do we stop the biological phenomena? Maybe something like this operates throughout the universe. And then moreover than that, he says, he's like, well, if you really push it, then you arrive at a limitation of the idea that we have natural law. It's like maybe it said that what we call natural law isn't so much law as a set of habits or strong tendencies that have developed over time. And like habits or strong tendencies, they become more rigid over time, but they're still never at a point where they're absolute. They're never at a point where they can't be broken. And among the various things at which he points, it suggests that he's onto something it is really, I just I thought this was like what I was talking about. I was like, this is going to blow you away. He's like, well, what is a property of a substance which is fixed? He's like, well, you could say its boiling point is fixed, right? Water boils at 100. 212. Uh, right. Degrees centigrade or uh, 212 degrees Fahrenheit. He's like, well, now, but water's been around a long time. So it's, a, it's, it's sort of entered into itself. It has a strong sense of identity as a substance. What would happen if you took a new substance and tried to arrive at its boiling point? And then he went into the old records and started looking at substances that were newly synthesized at the end of the 19th or the early 20th century, most of which were instantly farmers. Uh, pharmaceutical products, right? Things like aspirin. And here's the thing that just like blew him away. The boiling point of aspirin at the end of the 19th century is something like is recorded consistently at 10 to 15 degrees 
lower than it is now. In other words, it becomes more stable over time. The boiling point of substance actually shifts both with time and with the rate of proliferation. And he discovered that this is an open secret and problem in the pharmaceutical industry because they're always coming up with new substances which they wanna be able to produce en masse. In order to do that, they have to be conversant with the stable property of those substances chemically. But newly synthesized substances don't actually evidence stable properties. Their boiling points and other of their properties actually vary with time. They become more stable with time. And they also seem to become more stable more quickly if they produce them. Isn't that crazy? That's crazy, right? But it also is incredibly at odds with what we would expect from standard chemistry. You know, um, and I mean, so that actually then feeds back to the question of like evolutionary theory and so forth, because if these things like morphogenetic fields have this kind of reality all the way down, then, then consciousness as an element of the universe becomes even more important because it indicates like something like even pro-consciousness is operating in uh, substances that we're inclined to refer to as relatively inert. You know, yeah, so I'll, I'll um, yeah, so you got to check this cat out, man. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, Rupert Sheldrake. I'll, hmm. uh, I'll send you some links, right? But, um, Anyway, what's exciting about all that is that it means that the, the game is not settled. Mm -hmm. Outcome is not yet determined, you know, and there is, there is great hope, I think, in that openness, right? And even though I've been pretty cranky in the interview today, I actually ultimately share your growing optimism that we're going to ultimately move beyond this sticky impasse you know hopefully sooner rather than later right you know so because i feel like the universe is fundamentally a good place yeah 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 well and something i said to stick i remember it was basically that like the truth doesn't care the truth just is and it kind of makes me think because I'm, I'm i'm having flashes of of teachings when we were talking about equilibrium and how sort of there are varying states like varying maybe you'd say levels of quality of of states of equilibrium like you can have a a relatively steady like i mean you can have a simple system, say a tree farm, right? That thanks to the, um, the management of a mower and inputs, you know, it is at a state of, of steady equilibrium, very, you know, very consistent. You might even be able to call it healthy. I mean, in a sense, in that the trees are robust and the, you know, and, let's see if I can, if I can get there, but just because it's at equilibrium doesn't mean it's, it's at its full potential, shall we say. Right. Maybe Increased. Hesitant, right. Because 
but go on. I was just going to say that the increased biodiversity, you know, generally speaking, leads to sort of more biomass as far as I've come to understand it. They well, and more resilience. So while two systems might be equally at equilibrium, one might be more resistant to to uh, what we would call a a disruption than right. another, right? So, so yeah. go ahead. So I was just going to say, it's sort of like after the fall of the Soviet Union, um, Cuba's agricultural uh, matrix fall into a state of disarray for a time because mm-hmm. they had lost the, the Soviet sponsorship. And this drove them just as a matter of pragmatism to more traditional forms of agriculture that were at odds with the uh, industrial model uh, that had been dominant under the Soviet regime. Um, the ultimate consequence was that after that initial period of uh, disorder, Cuban agriculture became remarkably robust. And mm-hmm. then when they had that nasty hurricane, I can't remember the name, a few years later, which actually devastated agriculture uh, in, um, you know, in parts of um, the region uh, beyond Cuba, the Cuban were, uh, the Cuban farmer was the, the they had the, the best outcome because they were not monoculturally rigged. Mm-hmm. Their uh, system had been redeveloped along more permacultural lines and protocols. And as a result, they were able to deal with the disruption of a massive hurricane in a, in a far better way than a monocultural crop that it was evident in other islands in the vicinity. It's just, a, is, is that what you're talking? That's basically what you're talking about. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I'm, you know, I'm very familiar with the Cuba story as far as food goes and it's not to say that everything in Cuba was perfect. Uh, just no, no, I wasn't practicing. Sure. No, totally. But, um, you know, it's true. It's true. They, they, because of the constraints, because of the immediate disruption that was, a you know, that was the lack of, of Soviet uh, support, you know, they, they, they basically had no fossil fuels. So what choice did they have, but to garden, you know, it's, it, it was that simple. It was grow food or die, <laughs> you know? And it, so it's amazing because yeah, oftentimes people assume that disruption is bad and that these periods of sort of chaos are bad, but you know, it's, it's, it, we're in the fog of the chaos. You know, we won't, we won't know until we see how it all shakes out. What, what I'm hoping and what my sort of mission seems to be you know, this is, I, you know, it seems to be instinctual, uh, you know, for a lot of us, the, the instinct is towards decentralization, you know, increased sort of what you might call speciation or evolution or, uh, you know, diversification, you know, it's a lot of people are instinctual well, what going that direction. Is that it hasn't happened beforehand, right? Like, we, we should probably, I mean, we could go on all night about this, right? Like, the other thing that occurs to me is, like, with electrification. Like, it blows me away that we don't have distributed generation, right? The mm-hmm. idea of having just, like, one or two major, 
you know, generators responsible for whole regions or not World War II, but you know what I'm saying. Right. I can remember right after September 11th, they had that massive power shutdown through the whole, along the whole Atlantic seaboard. Mm. I mean, for like two days or something like that. Do you remember that? I was a kid. So I, you know, I don't, I don't remember a lot of the details. Like, I remember like a month, it was like in October, right after September 11th, like it was in October, there is a massive power failure. The power was out through all of New York State and Pennsylvania and New Jersey and parts of for like two days. They had no mm-hmm. power. That was like a whole like three or four states, Connecticut, you know. They had no power. And it was because of the fact that like only one or two power plants failed. That's insane, mm-hmm. right? You can like lose power to a whole set of states because of one two minor failures okay mm-hmm. you had distributed generation like a, where you know you, that just it wouldn't even be possible you just couldn't do it you just couldn't knock out that system in that way right you know if you have 300 sources of power instead of like seven or whatever it is you know you, you get the idea right it's obviously going to be more robust in its resistance to those sorts of uh, shutdowns than the, the the seven, and part of that goes back to the whole story of why you know they went with the Edisonian as opposed to the Tesla model, and you get AC as opposed to DC, and all the rest of it, and the political yeah. economy of you know. And I only I don't know like I don't know all that stuff in and out, but it's just it's the same basic principle that you're talking about with regard to like decentralization. Absolutely. You go too far down the other road. And become too decentralized and then that but can you though or down the, the 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 path of centralization that we really need a correction to use the market um locution you, you think we can we can become too decentralized i mean i suppose if you extrapolate it out yeah you you don't want to decentralize to the point where there is no community any longer, right? Right. That's the, that, that's the, you can't, you have to find this, this middle ground. If you become too right. decentralized, then you have a condition of multiple isolated communities that aren't in connection with each other. And you can create confusion and necessary conflict and all that sort of thing. True so, tribalism versus some kind of federations, you know, <clears throat> something like that. Um, I hear you. I hear you. I'm, I guess <coughs> I'm acknowledging the theoretical possibility. Yeah. 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 You have to, you have to have your eyes wide open. To the fact that the pendulum can swing both ways. Mm-hmm. But yes, in, 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 in regards to what we need now, I think you and I fully agree that what we have is far too much central centralization. So if we're striving for some level of balance, you know, clearly there's, there's only one direction to go that's good and proper. And until we're, until we look around and we think, Hmm, it's a little too decentralized. Let's keep going. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, centralization does have its virtues. Uh, and so I say that because you have to, you just have to see everything with open eyes. Right. You know, mm. there's like that. It's a, uh, that, 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 that Monty Python say, what did the Romans ever bring us? You mean besides for the aqueduct and clean water? And yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, so, um, you know, it's, but I, I don't, it just, it'll just take time. 
it'll work itself out, right? We may not be alive, but it does, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Well, I tell you what, you're, you're hitting on a point that I, sh I should take some, some uh, stock in because in a sense, we can be kind of ingrateful for what these centralized systems have, have produced. Um, well, you know, it's easy to say tear it all down, but we should not tear it all down you know, in all reality, there's, you don't want to, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater or whatever, but I don't know, man. I, I guess I, like I said, I always try to frame things ecologically. And, um, I think you could say objectively speaking that, yeah, you know, maybe, maybe if we're ranking sort of virtues or principles, um, it's like biodiversity, you know, diversity, and not in the way we mean in social justice kind of right uh, so there's this like ersatz yeah worship of like the, the i say it's, 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 it's counterfeit right hmm. it's counterfeit diversity because it what it does is it reduces diversity to just an accessory mm -hmm. okay mm -hmm. it's like an identity accessory oh you know i identify as such and such such and such and yet you know the the, the, the terrifying reality is that there's this this is a whole other conversation, right? But like one of the most distressing things about driving across the U.S. is experiencing firsthand the extent of hom homogenization, right? Oh my God, totally, totally. All right. Yeah. It wasn't like that. Even as recently as say like 1985, there was still a big difference if you drove across the U.S. between, I don't know, Stockdale, Arizona and Memphis, Tennessee and, you know, mm -hmm. Concord, New Hampshire, right? You know, there, 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 but increasingly there's just like devastating aesthetic leveling, which makes this talk of identity politics just, just cosmetic, just cosmetic. Yeah, people even really, you, you can't even have a sense, and it also has to do with our relationship with history, right? So much of, Oh my God, that's a whole other ball of wax, right? You're like, because you have to like be careful. We all have our own, like, you know, you do you, okay, whatever you do you. I'm not getting in anybody's way of doing whatever they want to do, but like, I mean, where's your rootedness in history, okay? So many of these emergent notions of identity are, com are constructed. They're not grounded in a real sense of historical sensibility and a real sense of connection to a heritage. And so lacking those kinds of roots, I just wonder about their stability and advisability. Um, it's, 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 just, it's just a sticky, sticky, complicated wicket. Yeah, well, I and think I'm speaking in very broad terms, so I'm, I'm sorry if it, it, it's very opaque um, as a consequence of, of being so general, right? Um, I guess I, it really transposes to me as, as to a lot of just curiosity as to how we are to come to uh, engage the question of gender. And, and sex and our relationship with those terms 
as, as they inform the human bodily experience. And then that's like a, a realm which I think is suffused with questions uh, to which I do not claim to have any definitive answer. But if you look at the manner in which the, the general public discourse deals with issues of, of, of sex and gender, there's a great uh, impression of unshakable certitude and, and, and matter of fact confidence, which I think is something that should elicit our caution. Hmm. Which is really is just a completely different line than anything else we've discussed earlier, except to note that it does intersect with issues of ecological sensibility. Well, and it Am I being completely, I don't know, like off the mark here or if I'm being, I, I, I believe I'm being inscrutable, you. I apologize. No, 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 no. I'm hearing you. I'm hearing you. Some people might not like, you know, us going in that direction at all. Whatever. I hear, I hear the point you're making and it's kind of, um, it's hard to pin down, but I'm, I'm thinking what we're discussing here is that there's a lot of you know, my, our, our mutual friend, Luke, he brought up the concept of epistemological humility in one of our discussions and how, like, I think what I heard you say is there's so much, you know, we know exactly what is and what is not. And if you disagree, go to hell. And that's not very humble, you know, to, to disregard any, any discussion in the matter whatsoever and say, yo, we've got it figured out and you don't. So the issue of sex and gender, it's a hot button issue. I'm not afraid to go there. You know, I, I, I don't claim like you, like, like you, I don't claim to know it all by any means. I'm. Or do I'm, I? I don't want to present yeah. myself as being stalwartly confident about anything in there. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying that the, 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 the status of the, the conversation right now inspires me with a lot of hesitation. Mm -hmm. Um. I almost wanted to say we should like call it here, man, mm -hmm. because that's just going to open up. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. like, I'd be perfectly happy to have another conversation, like, put that front and center. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I feel like if we were going to do that, we should find some other interlocutors than just the two of us. Because mm -hmm. um, certainly it's, it's, it's a topic where a, um, a multiplicity of perspective would be uh, helpful. Um, mm -hmm. There are other issues as well, right? You know, um, I think it might be, but 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 I don't know. Like, how do you you know? How do you feel? Well, it's you know, part of me is like that's that's not any. I'm not sure if that's what this show even is, but I'm I'm not saying it isn't. Like, right? I I I am all in favor of sense making, and there's clearly something going on there that. I'm not fully getting, um, 
And that's all I'm going to say on the matter, you know? Uh, but I guess it's like, to yeah, me, I mean, the conversation, I always want the conversation to be about sort of looking at solutions and looking at how we want to, how, how we want to influence I, I, I don't really have the words, brother. That's not even, I haven't maybe, really given a lot of critical thought. Maybe it was to like bring it up, right? It just. It's okay, it, it, brother. I'm just spitballing there, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the line was, as I recall, it, what brought me there was just looking at the, well, identity politics is what it sort of brought it up. And then I, I derived a reflection on identity politic from, uh, well, the question of centralization versus decentralization and the idea that if you like, oh, become overly decentralized culturally, then you get into this weird atomization. Mm, and that's okay. roughly like the sketch. Uh, of course, there's a distinction between the institutional frameworks with which you're dealing and then the cultural reality with which you're dealing. Those are two different terms, but um, the sort of splintered political terrain in which we find ourselves, superficially splintered because there's like this, this what, I, what I was really sort of tacitly suggesting is that the particular species of capitalism, which has come to a very sort of perversely uh, symbiotic relationship with the identitarian politics of the uh, 80s and early 90s paradoxically leads to a very homogenized culture. Hmm. So um, of course, then you're like, well, what do you mean by capitalism? And, and then we can make roll all the way back to that because there's lots of terminological uh, ambiguity there that would need to be resolved. I, I believe I'm following you, you know, like, well, I want to just issue an apology. Don't apologize, not, like, brother. Off the rails here. Right? No, no, no. Okay. These are, I, I don't want an apology because it's like, this is, this is how stick and I were talking. It's like you, you're trying to express a thought that's not easily expressed and you're using examples. It's not to say that sex and gender is even what you were trying to talk about. I'm like, it's, it's simply an example of how, I, I see the paradox, like if, if we allow the conversation to be hijacked, we could paradoxically go from a situation, you know, hypothetically as an example, where instead of there being more and more accepted genders, all of a sudden, paradoxically, and to everyone's detriment, there's none because it's so ambiguous. It, in right. a, is it, is that, that kind of on the right the track? Sort of, well, yeah, I think that's the sort of thing. Um, that's Over decentralization can can lead to some crazy level of ambiguity, um, yes. and yes. is is counterproductive. Yeah. Counterproductive to the initial goals, right? You, I I, I can see ground. this argument. You need, yeah. a, you need a ground, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If you just make identity utterly constructed it loses ground right mm, mm. and you get into like very 
very weird spaces. And then I probably latched onto the, the, the sex and gender thing just because I think our culture has an extreme bizarre relationship with the notion of embodiment and having a body and what it means to have a particular body. Hmm. And I become apprehensive because there's a suggestion that our body is just an accessory and that we can do whatever we want with our body. And um, while on one level, I grant that as a natural expression of our fundamental sovereignty, on the other hand, I, I feel that if you just take that and abuse that principle a la carte, you're actually going to start exploring very bad decisions for yourself. Mm. Um, decisions that aren't necessarily salutary for your own health or fulfillment. But of course, I now want to, I'm not going to impose anything on anybody because that is an even worse outcome, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, I'm really, I'm going, now I've gone ahead. I have committed myself to a territory, which is considered forbidden in terms of what I'm saying, right? right, right? right. I'm now outside of, uh, the sanctioned terms of dissent and what I, what I've implicitly put forth here, namely that we have to realize that our identity is in some sense constrained by our body. And um, if you have like an utterly antagonistic relationship with your own body, you're, you're, you're going to be in for some tough sledding. And uh, that yeah. may not be a politically popular, it may even be to some people a politically offensive position, but that, that is the position which I'm suggesting at this time. I personally, I'm saying that I'm that's that's my opinion. So, well, in a sense, it's a you know sort of it's the cautious position. It's the let's 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 not close this discussion altogether and make it so taboo that that basically then kids are kind of walking around in this totally weird, confusing discussion doesn't quite make sense because they're just a normal kid or whatever. You know, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm picking up what you're laying down. And like you said, it's kind of a can of worms. Um, but you know, what we're talking about in general is sort of like keeping our foot on, on the home base of truth. And I'm not afraid to discuss any topic as long as it's productive towards that end. You know what I mean? Um, you know, people are going to be offended. It's like, what are you going to do? But, but all of this is, is fair to discuss. Cause when, 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 when we're going through a period of rapid change, the only way we're going to sort of make the best of it is if we're honest and, and if we're willing to sort of power through the the discomfort of honest dialogue at the at the you know with with the intent of getting to some level of true and and rational decision making am, am i making sense yes yes okay. I, I think i feel like you've heard what i'm saying 
Mm. I just don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. No, I feel your, I feel your That's hesitation. I don't mind so, like offending I, people, right. but I don't want to hurt someone's feelings or pretend that or I be, can know what it is to be within someone else's head. You don't want to be misunderstood. And I, I hope that I've helped you not be misunderstood. Cause I think <laughs> I, I know what you were trying to say. And, and, uh, you know, I've known people personally that have transitioned and I know it's not an easy process and who's to say, you know, happiness on the other end or fulfillment on the other end. That's, you know, everybody's got to make their own way in this world. I fear for the kids that, that, that will be totally just confused because we are, we are making things awfully confusing, um, in, in a very like in your face kind of way, but we don't have to go into it a whole lot further than that, you know, um, at least for now. I guess really to. the only coda I would add to that is sure. like just what's really ultimately important is kindness, right? And I hope that uh, I haven't in any way been inadvertently unkind in what I've said. Sure, right? sure, sure. That's what we need more than anything else in the world. It's, it may sound really sappy, right? Mm -hmm. But it's the, the revivification of, of, of kindness, right? You just need to be learn to be kind and to be, and really to be gentle with each other at the same time that we're being courageously honest, right? Mm -hmm. No one can be dismissed. Mm -hmm. And you know what I say, if you're not being hateful, like, yeah, it's, it's really hard to, it's really hard to express some of these things. To, to, to get to the bottom of them. It, it's not easy. Yeah. We can only, we can only do our, do our best. So I hope we've done that tonight. You know, I hope so, man. I feel like this is kind of like a heavy note on which we're winding down. And I, I, uh, I, I and, uh, well, I'm going to, I'm going to resist the, the, the temptation to, to, to apologize again. <laughs> hey, I, um, I don't believe you have a single thing to apologize for, man. So, I really don't. I'll listen back to your words awfully critically, you know, just to be sure. But I, I feel what you were saying and anybody else, if they don't get it, they don't get it. I, you know what I mean? So I, I am, I am still, I'm just like, I'm grateful, man. Like, so I don't want you to feel sorry. Cause I'm, I'm very grateful. Like I've had some, some really, you're, you're somebody that I want to keep talking to genuinely oh, two Gen way street, man. Yeah. You hang out in the real world here. I agree. You got to come to Indy here. sometime, hang out with Luke and I, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Next few months, we'll make it happen. At some point over the next few months, we'll make it happen here. So. No doubt. No doubt. Well, I tell you what, you know, I, I, I'd like to throw a like softball at you here. <laughs> I don't really have much though. I mean, I guess how was your holidays, man? Was it good? Well, I had a nice mellow holiday, man. Yeah. Nothing, yeah. nothing too, uh, well, you know, I, I just time uh, with the fans, spent New Year's Eve at my friend's restaurant, mm -hmm. had to play some ping pong. That was fun. 
Like me some ping pong. Bro, I'm curious if there's a place around here I can go play ping pong because I'm not too shabby. I'll 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 be honest. I'd be I'd I'd be interested to play you at some point. So you know if you uh if I can get you to come down here to Cincy, my friend owns a Chinese restaurant, which is literally underground, and he's got a table tennis, and he's got a ping pong table there. And so I love telling people I play. I play, I play ping pong in an underground Chinese restaurant. Underground, extreme China Chinese. Gourm- China it really is literally, it's underground. It's in the basement of the building, right? So That's so, hilarious. But, um, but um, that's what I did New Year's Eve, man. So Sounds like a good time. So, yeah. yeah. Um, I just had some fun. That's what, you know, that's what, that's what. So I want to have some fun and I don't think I'm the only one. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I went, I went out for new years and I just, I, I found it a little sad, but in a, like, kind of like I laughed, I I thought it was funny, but the countdown, right. The traditional new year's Eve countdown, you know, I felt like this was just one of those moments where like modernity, like ruined the moment once again. And maybe it's because we don't have, maybe we didn't manage it properly but they got like four televisions on and each one of them has a different countdown clock and they're like spread out a minute apart so you know it's the most anticlimactic new year's eve i've ever seen because you had a piddly little countdown 10 9 you know five six people counting down over here 10 <laughs> seconds later it happened again 10 seconds later it happened again and i I was just scratching my head. It was one of these moments where I'm like, like, <laughs> where's the truth? Where's the truth? What time is it? That's your frame of reference, right? <laughs> You've been reading too much Einstein. Oh my Lord. So. It's relative, but you know, it, it was, it was, it was just a little funny and it was, it was a little like, like I said, anticlimactic. Cause usually there's a big cheer, yeah. right? Right. But there was no big cheer. It was yeah, just like, womp, womp. Well, it is kind of like sadly metaphorical. You know, it's, it's sadly yeah. on the nose, right? Like, we're, we're all desperate. We can't bring ourselves into like a real accord, even with respect to when the year. Uh, the, the rhythm, the jiving is just, it, we're not quite jiving. Too much dissonance. Yeah, yeah. Come but, back to attunement. Yep smooth out our vibrations i think we're uh we're all a little jagged these days so we're getting there though we're getting there right on man hey well i'm 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 like i said i'm grateful uh, i'm grateful too thank you so much for having me i've been wanting absolutely. to do more on my end and, and getting i'm gonna get there yeah uh, um well, I tell you what, we should up. we should maybe talk uh, before we, you know, I'll, I'll end the recording, but we should talk about how I can send you the videos from these two. Yeah, because um, I'm more than happy to let you have them. So, yes. Yeah. So let's go ahead and do that. Cool. And um, give me my email and so forth, and then I can get you some other stuff, too. So. All right. Well, once well, again, thank you, Mike. Absolutely. Thanks to all your listeners for listening to me. Oh, that blather Skype. I'm thinking, who is this blather Skype? <laughs> Mike's going on the way. Hey, man. At half I think, a I'm oh, sure. She's on there again. I'm sure anybody that's listening still got 
more than a little something out of this. So there you go. Rock and roll. All right. Thanks a lot, brother. This has been Mike the Polymath with the Easy Peasy Podcast. Come back again.